Do you like having a conscience? That might be an intrusive question, but let's pursue it a little bit. You know, the conscience is our sense of right and wrong, that sort of moral compass that resides most of the time just below the surface of our consciousness. But when we're tempted, when, when there's an opportunity to do something that we know is wrong, it suddenly comes above the surface and, and we feel it. it. It gives us some guidance. And if we do cross the line, it bugs us. The memory just keeps resurfacing and we talk about having a guilty conscience. Now, a conscience can be a pretty difficult thing to live with, a painful thing. We talk about the pangs of conscience. You know, that time you just explosively lost your temper and now you keep remembering it. When you cheated on that assignment, that night of drunken stupidity at the party, the times you went further than you'd agreed to, the evenings of irresistible porn, and it leads to those horrible feelings of regret. I, I wish I could undo it, but, but I can't. I've seen it. I've done it now. Of shame, of feeling dirty, of failure. I, I feel like rubbish. I, I feel like a hypocrite. And those feelings tend to just come unbidden, unexpected, unwelcome. You're trying to go to sleep and they just hit you. A person walks into the room and they were part of it and, and it just triggers it for you. Do you think it'd be better not to have a conscience? Is our conscience disposable? Superficially, that seems attractive, doesn't it? Wouldn't it be great not to have a conscience? Nothing bugging me about what I do wrong, but that's the problem, isn't it? There'd be nothing to put the brakes uh, on my temptation, on the things I'm attracted to. In fact, if I imagine not having a conscience, it's truly scary, both for me and for you. But the Bible talks about people with a seared conscience, People have been able to somehow make their consciences insensitive and it's a disaster for everybody. Dangerous to everybody. Better to have a conscience, but it's difficult to live with. Because there's two big effects of conscience, I think. The first is guilt and shame. We just feel dirty and stained. A friend described it as feeling brown. Now, just to prove that even engineers can have a bit of culture... Let me take you to Macbeth, Shakespeare's study in guilt. Uh, if you don't know the story, some of you probably studied it in high school. Um, Macbeth and his wife uh, king, kill the King of Scotland and take over. He, he, Macbeth becomes king and because he's king, there's actually no danger of getting caught out and, and somehow paying for his crimes, but guilt torments them. Macbeth at one stage says this, will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hands. His blood, his, his hands are bloodstained and he, all, the, all the water in the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean couldn't wash his hands clean. Lady Macbeth uh, cries out, out, damned spot, out, I say, as if somehow she can command the stain, the guilt, to go away, but it doesn't work and their guilt consumes them. There's guilt and shame and there's fear. <coughs> Fear of others. The first action of Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden when they disobeyed God is what? They hide from God in fear and shame. You probably remember as a kid you, when you did something that you knew was wrong, what did you do? Well, the first thing to do was you hid from your parents, didn't you? You didn't want to be confronted with it. You wanted to somehow get away and, and hide in the shadows, avoid the fear of being caught and shamed and punished. What's on your conscience? 
Because I presume, like me, there are things on your conscience. It doesn't take much to sort of poke my conscience back into life to bring the, the regret and guilt and shame and fear. And it's not just with people or parents, it's with God as well. Because when we're feeling guilty, we tend to avoid God. We keep our distance. What can we do? What are the solutions? Well, many people, especially in the last hundred years, have seen conscious as something to be got rid of. The 20th century was a time when people, many people thought, both theoretically and in practice, that the problem of guilt is actually created by God. If we can just get rid of God, then guilt will disappear. But guess what? 21st century Western world, we've largely got rid of God. Has guilt disappeared? Not on your life. It's as strong and, and thriving as ever. Most of us have developed strategies to alleviate guilt. Distraction, Netflix is one, isn't it? But atonement is probably the more common one. We, we think if I can just do something good, if I can inflict a bit of discomfort on myself, go without chocolate for two days, somehow that will atone for my guilt. But guilt is like cigarette smoke. It just clings to our clothes. It clings to our bodies. It clings to, to our consciences. Pop psychology offers solutions. Search the internet, you'll find lots of them. First one is, blame somebody else. <laughs> if you've got a conscience, make yourself the victim, not, not the perpetrator. Blame somebody else. When that doesn't work, convince yourself it's irrational. I'm not really a bad person, I just do some bad things. When that doesn't work, well, one website I looked at suggested this. Find a good, strong cardboard box and put your guilt into the box and then wrap it up in nice wrapping paper and go to the nearest beach or cliff and throw it away and your guilt will be gone. No, it doesn't work like that. It won't work. What will cleanse us? Well, Hebrews chapter 9 is about that very issue. The offering of Jesus 2,000 years ago, sacrificing himself, shedding his blood to cleanse our consciences. But we need a little background to this. The background is actually the Old Testament, which is two-thirds of our Bibles. You might have a Bible that's never opened the Old Testament. The pages still stick together. Well, it's a central background to what he's going to uh, explain to us about Jesus. Without it, we won't understand it. Because in the Old Testament, God had instructed his people Israel on how to deal with defilement. The law was, was where we found that instruction. Because it assumed that all of us are defiled by evil. We're dirty before God. And God gave them, Israel, an elaborate, costly system of cleansing defilement. It involved priests, people who could mediate between us, the defiled, and God. It involved a sanctuary, a, a place where the presence of God was and where atonement could be made. And it involved offerings of animals being killed and blood sprinkled. But the writer of the Hebrews says in the first verse of chapter 10, this is all just a shadow of the good things that are coming. It's not the realities. It was just an educational system to help us understand the reality when it came. Just a shadow. Jesus is the real thing. He's the real priest in the real sanctuary offering an effective sacrifice. And this chapter, as with most of Hebrews, is saying one clear thing. Jesus is better than all the Old Testament structures and activities. Not just better, though, He's the best. Every year Apple brings out a new iPhone, doesn't it? 
And you think, oh, what the best? It's an update. It's better than the one before. But you know what? If you buy this year's model, next year you'll have to update again, won't you? You might as well just leave it for a year and get the next one. Is Jesus like that? He's just an update that one day will be superseded? No. He's not just better than the Old Testament. He's the ultimate. He's the best. He replaces them, but nothing will ever replace him. Firstly, as the high priest that we need. Now, this was last week. If you were here last week in uh, Hebrews chapter 7, this was part of what it said. Ben gave the talk last week. It was terrific. Go online and look at it. Excuse me, the screen's not working here. Ah, what's happened? Sorry, has it never been working? No, it went off because we hadn't touched it enough. Okay. Let's see if we can get this back on. Thanks, Rosemary. It's on. On now? Okay, let me get the lights back up so I can see you. At least I can see my words. Okay, thanks. So Hebrews chapter 7, many priests since death, uh, there were many of the Old Testament priests because death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. It's better than theirs. So he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He's a sinless priest. He's appointed by God himself. He wasn't elected by some democratic process and he lives forever. We don't have to keep replacing him. But secondly, and this is more chapter 9, Jesus enters the real sanctuary, the true tabernacle. We introduced this in chapter 8 that we're sort of skipping over, where the writer says we, don't, we have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, set up by the Lord, not by mere human beings. That is, in the Old Testament, God instructed Moses to build what was called a tabernacle, a tent, a sort of portable temple. And this is sort of what it looked like, at least in the instructions. It's got this courtyard and there's a place to burn all the sacrifices. Lots of animals are being brought. The priests are busy doing all this sort of stuff. But the critical part is the tent. See that tent there? That tent had two rooms in it. And that's what he describes in chapter 9. Let me read to you chapter 9, 1 to 7. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle, a tent, was set up. In its first room, which is the holy place here, in, in uh, the, the sort of outer room in the tent, with a lampstand, the table with its bread, this was called the holy place. Um, behind the second curtain, that is the little room, was the most holy place, or the holy of holies, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, the stone tablets of the covenant, and above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we can't discuss these things in detail, which you'll be relieved about. So that's the arrangement. That the, the Holy of Holies is where God symbolically himself dwelt. He, he, he sat on the throne of the ark of the covenant, ruling. If you wanted to come to God, that's where you had to go. That was the very presence of God. Verse 6, when everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room, that's the holy place, and carried on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the, pe- the, commit- sins the people had committed in ignorance. See that inner room where God dwells? Well, if you're a normal person of Israel, you never go in there. 
If you're a priest, you never go in there. It's only the holy priest, the high priest, sorry, once a year who can go in there, and he goes in very, very carefully. He's got to kill a whole lot of animals and sprinkle blood everywhere before he can go in to atone for the sins of the people. And only he can go in. And so there's a legend, I don't know if it's true, that uh, when the temple was set up, and, or the tent in the, uh, earlier than that, that they would always tie a rope around the leg of the high priest in case he died while he was in there. Because otherwise he couldn't get his body back out because no one else can go in. And there was a fear that they would die in there when they came face to face with God. And our writer draws a conclusion from that. He says the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, had not yet been disclosed. You couldn't go there. I couldn't go there. God was present, but we had no access. It's a bit like Buckingham Palace. If you've ever visited Buckingham Palace, if the Queen is in residence, they actually put a particular flag up. And you get there and you think, the Queen's here. Oh, I'll go and talk to her. No way. <laughs> you can't go in. You're locked out. And that's what it was like for Israel. God was showing them that they couldn't go in. Why? Well, it's because the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear their consciences. They were still guilty. They still felt guilty before God and so were unable to go in. And the priests and the high priest couldn't do the job properly. Very rarely could the high priest enter the God's presence, just once a year. And then it was only really the symbol of God's presence, a handmade tent out in the middle of the desert. And so the writer says about Jesus... He's different. When Christ came as a high priest of the good things that are now here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not the one out in the desert, not just a tent made by human hands, not part of this creation. But in verse 24, he entered a sanctuary that wasn't a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Jesus didn't go and erect a tent out on the oak lawn somewhere and say, I'll go in there, maybe I'll find God. No, he went straight to heaven. Heaven is a way of describing the spiritual reality that God exists in, as opposed to our physical reality. And that's where Jesus entered. That's where Jesus is now, actually with God. And so he's the best high priest ever who's entered the very presence of God for us, interceding for us, which is what we need. But the third element is actually the most critical. He does it by his own blood. So verses 12 and 13, he didn't enter by the means of blood, the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining an eternal redemption. Because the blood of bulls and goats, that sort of stuff only ceremonially cleans you. It only outwardly cleans you. It's like, like having a shower, hoping the shower will cleanse my conscience. It just can't do it. The blood of bulls and goats don't do that, but Jesus' blood does. Now, when we talk about blood, it's a little bit, well, freaky for us, I think, because we think of blood as haemoglobin and white blood cells and red blood cells and all that sort of stuff, and you get bags of it and you go to the Red Cross and donate it. But blood for the people of Israel was a more specific thing. It wasn't about the liquid. It wasn't the fluid. It was what it symbolised. Because when you sacrificed an animal, when you executed an animal as an offering, you drained the blood out, and the blood therefore represented its life being given. It was a life donated, if you like. 
in the blood. And so when we talk about the blood of Christ, it's not that when Jesus died on the cross, heaps of blood flowed out of him and somehow that did magical stuff. It's that his death was a sacrifice for sin. It atoned for sin by his own blood. He sacrificed for our guilt. See, the blood of animals can only provide that outer cleansing. The Old Testament sacrifices showed the seriousness of our guilt and the difficulty of removing it. The wages of sin is death, not a slap on the wrist. Forgiveness requires blood, a death. And in an intuitive sense, that guilt needs atoning. It is right, actually. A sacrifice is needed. But what we could ever sacrifice can't do it. An animal can't do it. It needs to be who? Well, there needs to be a human like me to stand in my place. It needs to be somebody morally blameless, no sin of their own. It needs to be somebody who's willing to do it, not forced or coerced, roped in. Ultimately, it needs someone who is not only human but divine, that he can give his life to ransom more than one of us. And Jesus qualifies uniquely. He's not just better than the Old Testament animal sacrifices. He's the best. His actually works. And the writer keeps emphasising one particular aspect of Jesus' sacrifice, that it was once for all. So he didn't enter heaven to offer himself again and again, day after day, year after year, like the Old Testament high priest. Otherwise, he would have to suffer many times. But he's appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin once for all by the sacrifice of himself. Once for all time. It doesn't need to be done again. In fact, it's unthinkable it would be done again. We may try to cleanse our consciences, atone for our guilt, but when we try to do it, there's always more to do, isn't there? I've never done enough to make up for my past, to cleanse my conscience, and I keep adding to my debt day after day, week after week. I'll never finish. I can never relax. But Jesus, when he offered himself, sat down at the right hand of God in heaven. Job done. Never to be repeated. Never to be supplemented. And so the writer says he's inaugurated, he's a mediator of a new covenant, a whole new arrangement between us and God. He's come. We're no longer under the old covenant. It's been been made obsolete by the new. And so verse 14 really summarises what this whole chapter is about. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? He offered himself, that's what his crucifixion was about, unblemished, to cleanse us, not outwardly, not give us a shower, but inwardly, our very consciences from our guilt and shame. But you might say, Tim, how does that work? How can something external cleanse the internal? It's sort of like we need internal stain remover. How can something that happened 2,000 years ago, objectively, in a city outside Jerusalem that I've never been to, how can that cleanse my conscience, my subjectivity? It seems to leave me unaffected. Well, actually, it's the objective, the out there, the external, that's the only thing that can really change the internal. Let me try and give you an analogy. Imagine, if you will, that you're mounting up a hex debt while you're at uni. Is that true for any of you? Okay, and and because you fail a couple of units and you go on and do a master's, when you leave uni, you've got this significant hex debt. 
I don't know, some people are telling me about $60,000, $80,000. And you start work. And every pay packet you get, the pay slip says, your hex debt is still $60,000. You might have paid off 100 bucks this month, but that doesn't put a debt in $60,000, $80,000, does it? And every time you see your pay slip, it just reminds you that you're in debt and you feel the weight of it and, and it, it, it crushes you. You think, I'll never get out of this. How, how will I ever get free and be able to afford a house and live a normal life and do what I want to do? I've just got this debt hanging over me. Sorry if that's you. Sorry to scare you, but that's what it's like to be like. Now, what could you do? Well, you could pretend there's no debt, couldn't you? You could say, I'm, I'm just going to ignore it. I'm going I'm to feel good. I'm going to feel free. But every time you get your pay slip, it reminds you, doesn't it? And the feelings, the crushing weight just returns again. But imagine, if you will, that your uncle decides to pay your whole debt at one swoop. Sends a cheque to the Australian Tax Office and you get a letter from the ATO saying your hex debt has been paid in full, you owe zero. Will that change how you feel? You bet it will, won't it? <laughs> at the moment, I presume you'll throw a party, won't you? You'll ring your uncle and say, I can't believe it, what an amazing thing you've done for me. I, I, I feel so different now. But my guess is that maybe a few days later you're so used to feeling in, in debt that you start to feel it crushing you again. What are you going to do? Well, I presume you'll pull out the letter from the ATO and point to it and say, no, I've got no debt. Or you go online to MyGov and look up your debt and it says hex debt, zero. And you feel terrific. The weight has gone. You actually need the objective to change the subjective. It's the objective fact, the reality, that Christ has paid your debt. In full, that means you can feel no more guilt. Your subjective can be changed by what has happened objectively. Jesus offered himself for you, for your guilt and mine. Was it sufficient? You bet it was. And so when your conscience bothers you, when it, uh, it, it grinds you down, when you feel the weight, when you feel dirty and ashamed, it's the objective action of Jesus that's the only solution. It cleanses you. It helps you feel and know that you are clean. Well, what does that mean for us? Let me make three quick points. Firstly, it's the end of self-atonement. You know that instinct to do something to cleanse my conscience, to pay the cost, to, to wash the stain. Now, some of you may have come not knowing that Jesus has paid that for you. He, he can cleanse you. And this is great news, isn't it? There is a cleansing for your conscience that Jesus has done for you. Please embrace it. If you don't understand what that means, talk to a Christian friend. I'm sure they'd love to explain. But there are very religious ways of doing self-atonement. The things I do, the religious rituals... It may not be animal sacrifices, but sometimes it's ritual cleansings or fastings or flagellations. Or some denominations even think they re-sacrifice Jesus on the uh, human-made altar in a human-made sanctuary, sanctuary by a human priest. Now that is not only totally unnecessary, it's blasphemous because Jesus died once for all. That's going back to the Old Testament shadows as if Jesus hasn't come and done it. But there's more personal forms of self-atonement, I think. You know that experience when you stuff up and you know you've stuffed up and what do you do? Well, you keep your distance from God for a little while till you feel a little bit less unworthy of coming to God. Why? 
Do you now think that you, there's two atonements for your sin? There's Jesus and you, and the cleansing power of time. It's sort of like there's a stage in our family life when we employed a housekeeper, a house cleaner, would come once a week to clean our house. Guess what happened in our house the day before the cleaner came? You just be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Rosemary, tell you, Rosemary would run around and clean the house. Lest, lest the cleaner might come and discover that our house needed cleaning. God forbid that that should ever happen. And so we try our little strategies to tidy up our mess so that when we eventually ask God to do his bit, he'll be pleasantly surprised at how much we've already done for ourselves. Now he knows, doesn't he? You can't kid God. He knows and Jesus cleanses you. Not you, not your distance, not the time, not your little acts of atonement. It's the blood of Jesus, not the blood of Jesus plus. Secondly, it means the end of guilt trips that victimise us. How often have others used guilt and shame to get you to do things for them? Sometimes churches do it, pastors do it. If I've done it to you, I apologise. I should never have done it. Because although guilt is real... To use it like that is evil. If that's been your experience, I pray that you come to know what Jesus has done. But it's not just churches who use guilt, sometimes friends or family who who say, you know, if you don't help me, if you don't come to this, if if you don't let me do something, then you're a bad person. And guilt can work. It's very powerful because we feel it. It's, It's there. It's ingrained. What's the solution? Well, the solution is not to deny or suppress our guilt. But acknowledge it and go to Jesus. Know that he's cleansed you. And that means you're liberated. You can resist the manipulation. You're free to decide whether what they're asking you to do is good or not, instead of having your arm twisted. And thirdly, draw near to God. If your conscience is cleansed by Jesus, don't stay away out of guilt and shame. Don't stay away from God out of fear. Jesus is with God the Father in heaven at the moment, sitting beside the Father. His blood cleanses you. You can go straight in. Now, this minute, this afternoon, tomorrow. You feel guilty? Don't let it keep you away. If you think, can I? Uh, 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 And your conscience knifes you and you think, "I, I, I can't talk to God as I am at the moment. Tell your conscience that Jesus' blood cleanses it. Tell your conscience to shut up and get out of the way so that you can draw near to God.